you're following along with us and the book, then please turn to page 263 of chapter 30, The Law of Miracles. That is if you're obviously using this, the 1946 original version. Otherwise, you'll find it once we start along. There are multiple editions, of course, available. This is from the third paragraph. To tear the veil of Maya is to pierce the secret of creation. The yogi who thus denudes the universe is the only true monotheist. All others are worshipping heathen images. So long as man remains subject to the dualistic delusions of nature, the Janus-faced Maya is his goddess and he cannot know the one true God. Of course, here Yogananda is talking in the absolute highest terms to understand God as that singular experience. You know, none of us consider uh, there was a time, of course, the Indian tradition has uh, aspects of this, but there was this whole concept where, you know, in the pagan religions where God was never a singular reality, every aspect of nature and the, the infinite was divided and you could tune into whoever you wanted whenever you did. Um, and then came, you know, these monotheistic religions of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And they were so against this pagan outlook. And they said, there's only one God and there can't be anything else. And uh, Hinduism or Sanatan Dharma more appropriately has been so beautiful that way to be able to blend these two realities, recognizing that one singular state of Satchitananda, but also recognizing that the moment Satchitananda comes into manifestation, it naturally becomes various. Naturally, it has many manifestations and each of us almost, you can say, use these manifestations as, as ladders. You know, first I tune into the layer I can. If you can just tune into nature, I mean, already that's such a wonderful way to commune with spirit. But then we start tuning into the qualities behind, the na behind nature itself, the elements and then the elemental reality is continuing further and further. And those are, the, you know, as we were talking in the Gita, you've got the entire hierarchy going up to the Devas, all the way to the Trinity, the Trinity of Om, which is Brahma, Vishnu and Mahesh. They're not, in fact, don't get offended by this, but they're not the Supreme God from that perspective because they are the threefold manifestation of Om. In manifestation, they are the highest vibration that exists but then beyond them of course lies that bliss and so Yogananda is saying until we don't experience that bliss all of us even if we believe or have faith that there is only one God we're not able to actually relate to that singular reality we're still uh, as he says Janus faced Janus used to be I believe a Roman God who was two-faced good bad happy sad so that dualistic movement will always play out in our lives the word world illusion maya is individually called avidya so on the large scale maya the illusion of the world when it's individualized when we connect and relate to maya it becomes avidya inside us which means literally not knowledge ignorance or delusion maya or avidya can never be destroyed through intellectual conviction or analysis but solely through attaining the interior state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. 
So he's really, he's raising the bar really, really high for us. Until we reach that state of nirvikalpa samadhi, we'll only kind of, I don't know, very vaguely understand that there is God, there is spirit, yeah, he exists beyond. I mean, no matter how, how much you believe in God, people are still always like, why did he create, you know, why did he create us in the first place and what's going on and, you know, we're, we're still upset with him about this whole charade that he's created because we don't, the truth is we don't know him. You know, our upset comes from just this intellectual understanding of what we think life should be or life is. And an only way to truly understand, as Master said, no saint who has ever merged into God has said, oh, this was such a big sham. <laughs> he says, when they got into God, it's just like, ah, now I see that none of this ever existed <laughs> in the first place. That's the hard part for us, isn't it? Because we're so convinced that it all exists. But when you merge back into God, you realize it never did. Just like, as Yogananda often used, when you wake up from a dream, that entire dream world you created, no matter how complex, no matter how fun or not, no matter how engrossing and involving, no matter how real that dream world was or that dream experience, when you wake up, it just never existed, did it? Except only as a very minute part of your own consciousness. That's one way for us to tune into this experience. The Old Testament prophets and seers of all lands and ages spoke from that state of consciousness. Ezekiel says, and this is from quoting from the Bible, the Old Testament, Afterwards he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel come from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Beautiful words, but when you read them, they make absolutely no sense to us. Where do I find this gate? What's all this noise of many waters? But of course, those of us who have a deep meditative practice as a Yogananda then goes on to explain this verse. He says, through the divine eye and the forehead, which is our east. So in our very body, we have east, west, north, and the base of our spine as south. Therefore, even when we talk about when we sit to meditate, it is most conducive if we're facing east as well. Because if we're facing east, we are in perfect harmony with that magnetic flow of energy of the earth itself. Because then our spiritual eye is connected with the flow of the energy that the east represents. So, through the divine eye in the forehead, which is our east, the yogi sails his consciousness into omnipresence, which is what he called the glory of the God of Israel. Hearing the word or Om, those of us who practice the Om technique, many of us have heard the sound of many waters, that rushing of the waves. And that is the, you can say, closest to the Om vibration that we'll get. It's the sound of the Vishuddha Chakra. Whereas the Om is a symphony then of all the sounds of our chakras. So this is not just poetic. This is an actual experience. You don't even need to be that, that deep in meditation to have at least a glimpse of God as sound. In fact, many people have said after receiving the Om technique and they start hearing those sounds, 
suddenly they remembered that that particular sound they already heard perhaps years ago where mm. they were, you know, in a state of stillness or where they were quiet or where they were reading a book or where they, you know, when they woke up in the middle of the night and suddenly, you know, there was this vibrational sound. So the sound is constantly around us. And if we just still the mind a little bit, if we physically become less stressless, um, you will be surprised to see how many sounds, I mean, so many manifestations and layers of OM we can hear. Among the trillion mysteries of the cosmos, the most phenomenal is light. Unlike sound waves whose transmission requires air or other material media, light waves pass freely through the vacuum of interstellar space. Even the hypothetical ether, held as the interplanetary medium of light in the undulatory theory. Now this is where it starts to get a little heavy. <laughs> We're trying to figure out what Yogananda is talking about here. Okay, I'm going for it. So. <laughs> <laughs> can be discarded on the Einsteinian grounds that the geometrical properties of space render the theory of ether unnecessary. Under either hypothesis, light remains the most subtle and freest from material dependence of any natural manifestation. Now, if any of this made sense to you, wonderful. If it hasn't made sense to you, what Yogananda is trying to say is of all manifestations that exist in this world, light is the most, the word he uses is phenomenal. It's the subtlest. Now for anything to manifest, and he uses sound wave as one example, a medium is required. So if we were to suck all the air out of this room and hopefully breathe as well, we won't be able to speak to each other which is if I take all of us up to space and we try to speak to each other, we won't hear each other. Why? Because the property of a wave is such that it needs a medium to travel through. So only because there's air does sound, the vibration of sound is carried across air and then comes onto our eardrum and we're able to hear each other, hear anything. Light doesn't require any medium. Now, it doesn't Initially, you've heard the word ether, right? And we use it as the fifth element uh, because we don't have yet the right word for it. In um, uh, the Indian tradition, in Sanatana Dharma, we use this actually the term akash, which is space, which is equivalent to ether. So in science in the 18th century, up till that time, they believed that light was just a wave. And if light is a wave, it requires a medium to travel through. And so therefore they assume that the whole universe is filled with this substance called ether, which later on they realized is not true because space is a complete vacuum. Of course it has a certain substance, but not a substance we are able to yet detect. So light is the freest, as Yogananda says, from any material dependence of all natural manifestations. So it has a unique kind of um, place God comes to us even in deep meditation as light. Often if you see any scripture, they'll talk about that light manifesting and you know, and that light taking form then of one version or the other. 
And that particular vibration that is light is the subtlest and the closest, you can say, of all material manifestations to the divine vibration. And Yogananda now goes on to explain why light is so unique in that way. It's going to be a little heavy, but we'll try to, try to break it down a little bit at a time. In the gigantic conceptions of Einstein, the velocity of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. So that's extremely fast, isn't it? 186,000 miles per second dominates the whole theory of relativity. So we know roughly, we've all maybe studied, Einstein came up with a theory that, you know, equated energy and mass as the same, E equals mc square. Now energy and mass can only be equated on the basis of the velocity of light. So according to Einstein, let's first actually read a little bit and then we'll talk about it. He proves mathematically that, that the velocity of light is so far as man's finite mind is concerned. So Yogananda here is rightly not even saying that light is constant. He's only saying as far as man's finite mind is concerned, the velocity of light is the only constant in a universe of unstable flux. So we just talked about how life is duality, that everything's constantly in motion, that everything needs an opposite, whereas light is at least for our current experience, the only singular reality you can count on as unmoving, as constant. So therefore, automatically that makes it very special in an entire universe that, is, that requires duality. Because what is duality? Is relativity. The universe requires relativity to exist, whereas light defies that relativity. On the sole absolute of light velocity depend all human standards of time and space. Not abstractly eternal as hitherto considered, light and space are relative and finite factors, deriving their measurement validity only in reference to the yardstick of light velocity. Again, some of this doesn't easily roll off your tongue, does it? But up till a certain point, let's take, you know, to the 18th, 19th century, it was believed that space is a fixed reality, you know, which we obviously see. It's like, okay, I have to walk from here to here. It's a very fixed reality. There's nothing, there's no confusion about the fact that I have to move through space in order to, you know, get from point A to point B. And obviously, time was considered a fixed reality as well. One second, two second, three second. None of us, when we say fixed reality, it means all of us perceive space and time the same. That's what makes anything fixed. This harmonium is a fixed reality because everybody in this room and everybody hopefully on the camera, on, on your own houses, see this harmonium as all of us see it and we are... Uh, united in our understanding of this harmonium. So similarly, we are united in our understanding of space and we are united in our understanding of time. Narayani doesn't say, when I say, oh, a minute has passed, Narayani won't say, no, at least 20 minutes have passed. No, she'll also more or less agree, right? Yes. Thank you. That minute has passed if we're both synchronizing our watches. So up till this point, that was the very clear understanding and it makes most sense to us. In fact, Einstein's theory of relativity is very counterintuitive to our minds. Our mind says, this is space, this is time. But when Einstein came along, he realized 
that when two objects are in motion at different speeds at that time distance time completely changes so for example if one person's on a train and one person's walking on the road simultaneously when they see things the person on the train will see distance very differently will see time even very differently although it's hard to perceive because the difference is so minute than the person standing so in fact they've done these experiments where two objects are moving at completely different speeds quite fast speeds in fact and not only can they not uh, agree upon measurement of distance they can't agree upon measurement of time they can't even agree upon the sequence of events which means that past present future are also relative to the speed at which we are traveling so if somebody is going really fast and somebody is going really slow his past present and future is going to be completely different from this person's past present and future if you ask them later on what happened did a b and c happen in this way this guy is going to say yes a b c happened this guy is going to know wait a minute b happened then a happened then c happened so essentially they're not even going to be able to agree upon what he considers past present future versus what this guy so by that definition all space and time has been essentially relegated <laughs> to the area of complete illusion based purely on the relativity of the observer anything that is relative to the observer is no longer a constant reality so einstein realized this however no matter what speeds we are going at the speed of light remains constant that's the only thing that will never change no matter what you i or anyone is doing now that's an interesting thought for me because obviously we're not moving like as if we think we're moving at crazy speeds it's not like i'm running all the time and narayan is just standing still and so we're going to see this but our soul journey all of us are moving at different speeds some of us are not moving at all some of us are moving backward you know when we act in certain ways that bring our consciousness lower some of us make great strides when we're able to hold our consciousness above so for those of us each of us are progressing at relative speeds towards god towards the absolute so each of us are going to tune into this world very differently and none of us can agree upon the same experience you take somebody to a beautiful forest one person says oh wow the stillness one person says so many mosquitoes one person wonders how many you know if i tear down all these trees how much money i'll get from all the wood i mean everybody has an entirely unique experience of what and it depends on the state of consciousness we have in that moment if we're still if there's joy in our heart the forest enhances that joy if we're restless the forest enhances that restlessness if we are a fervashia bent little money minded and greed is greater in our heart we wonder what we can receive from this forest what we can take from it and so on and so forth the experience of light however remains forever constant so what does that mean that all distance and all time is relative only to the speed of light and nothing else in joining space as a dimensional relativity again these words time has surrendered age old claims to a changeless value time is now stripped to its rightful nature a simple essence of ambiguity 
With a few equational strokes of his pen, Einstein has banished from the cosmos every fixed reality except that of light. Let's look at this concept again just a little bit differently. So if space and time are not fixed realities and are relative before we functioned on what we called a three-dimensional reality of space, right? We thought of, you've got the height, you've got the length, you've got the width, and that's the three-dimensional. And if you remember, we used to create those little vectors. Uh, and what Einstein did was he said, we well, don't live in a three-dimensional world. We live in a four-dimensional world where time is the fourth dimension because it's no longer a fixed reality. It's relative. And only light exists as the pure essence of a constant. Now, he had a hard time kind of actually proving this. Uh, I, if you remember in many of our classes, especially when we talk about intuition and inspiration, we talk about Einstein received this entire download of this theory almost as a flash. He talks about it as a boom. It just came to me. This entire thing pre-made all come. But he couldn't prove it. And it took at least several years. And so one person kind of helped prove this truth for him in, during a time of a solar eclipse. Now, normally when the sun was shining uh, without you know, any obstruction, a certain star was present, say, for example, at this point. Now, the moment a solar eclipse came, when that same star was then spotted, it actually moved here. And so it was able to prove that what we consider as distance and space, normally you think, but the moment, what happened here was when, this, when the moon came before the sun, light started to bend. And this is where the general theory of relativity comes that takes gravity into account. Now I'm bringing gravity here for a very specific reason. Yogananda called gravity the um, the principle of gravity equivalent to the principle of love on the spiritual plane. So on a spiritual law is the law of love and on the physical law uh, it manifests as gravity. What is gravity? The attraction. You know that's what we're all stuck on earth because earth really really loves us desperately. And the sun has a gravitational pull of its own. So what Einstein realized is around gravity light bends. And if light bends, he realized what happens is space and time bend as well. Gravity, you may not realize, is quite an anomaly. Nobody can explain gravity. They can tell you how gravity is to be used, they can give you all the equations, but they've still not been able to figure out how, you know, how gravity actually exists. And so they realized that when, if space and time were, uh, you know, a sheet like this, if you introduce any object of a great enough mass, their gravitational pull will bend space-time. Now that's a fascinating concept for us. Because if we take ourselves, we are a mass as well, space and time bends itself around us. And the greater the mass we have, which as Einstein has proven, is equal to energy, the greater the energy we have, the more we can manipulate space and time around us, just as the sun does, just as the earth does. And so when space and time get distorted, 
light which is a constant has to now travel a greater distance because this is a straight line if I bend this line what happens the distance increases so when light has to travel longer distance but since its speed is the same what happens is time becomes shorter that's why they realize time is entirely relative have you seen the movie interstellar do you remember the basis of the interstellar movie what was it that when they would go into a very strong gravitational pull in the movie, they were close to a black hole. What was happening? Time was going slow for him. Therefore, it was speeding up for everybody else on Earth. So what was one hour for him was decades of life for somebody on Earth. And that's what that means. That's where relativity of time comes in. It's not fixed. It's not constant. It depends on gravity. And what allows... What was the name of the actor? Matthew McConaughey Matt, or something? Matt. They were Martian thought. Anyway, <laughs> here we have to get into all the movies. Um, but the actor, whoever he was, the only thing that allows him to communicate with his daughter on Earth was their connection of love. Because gravity is beyond space and time, just as love is beyond space and time. You can love somebody who you never met who lived in the past, just as we love Yogananda. I never met him. But my love for him is stronger and more real than my love for many people who live in my life right now. You can love somebody who's left this version of space-time, who's passed on. And your love is just as strong and just as real. So love is this really powerful force that, as Yogananda called it, the most powerful force in the universe. And here, gravitational pulls and the gravitational waves follow the same thing, where they bend space and time thereby annihilating the fixed reality between what you would consider as space and time. I know, I know it's a little crazy to really mind, uh, wrap your mind around it, but it's helpful for us to realize that science today is really working hard at piercing some of these kind of mental blocks that we've created about reality itself. Let's continue. <laughs> In the later development, his unified field theory, this is Einstein, the great physicist embodies in one mathematical formula the laws of gravitation and of electromagnetism, reducing the cosmical structures to variations on a single law. Einstein reaches across the ages to the rishis who proclaimed a sole texture of creation, that of a protean Maya. So Einstein essentially, in his own particular way, realized that there's only one fabric behind all of creation, that all these other laws, up till that time gravity was different, the law for electromagnetism was different, and there were multiple kind of diverse ways to look at the world. And Einstein brought an understanding to unify all of them, which is that fabric of Maya. On the epochal theory of relativity have arisen the mathematical possibilities of exploring the ultimate atom. Great scientists are now boldly asserting not only that the atom is energy rather than matter, but that atomic energy is essentially mind stuff. Just reading yesterday some of these quotes. One quote by, was by this scientist called Max Planck. And he was, he's considered the father of uh, quantum physics. And he said, when I look at the atom, I realize that the atom really doesn't exist. And what exists behind it is pure consciousness. And the atom 
is only a reflection of that consciousness. Can you imagine a scientist talking about it? Because when they go deeper and deeper, they can't make sense of it. Now, this is another interesting aspect of what science is today. Einstein's theory of relativity works for large objects. Planets, us, you know, just things that we can see with our eyes. Quantum mechanics and physics works with atomic and subatomic particles. And the problem is, they work completely differently. You can't apply the theory of relativity to atoms and you can't take quantum mechanics and apply it to planets or to us as a whole. So we still aren't able to actually bring together these two realities, the infinitely large and the infinitely small. Both seem to have laws that govern themselves separately. But when they look closer and closer, trying to pierce, these scientists aren't able to tune into it. Another quantum physicist by the name of Arnab Goswami, he says, the only thing I can say about an atom, because when you look at an atom in space and it suddenly disappears and then it suddenly appears, is that the closest I can think I can say about an atom is that it is a thought. And that I can think it into existence and I can think it out of existence. Isn't that just crazy? I mean, so when we're talking about the law of miracles, on that subatomic level that you and I cannot see, we're all really performing miracles all the time. It's just that they're so minute that none of us are even aware ki wo ho raha hai. But now we've got instruments that can kind of pierce some of those veils and the scientists are seeing these things kind of coming into existence, just flitting out of existence and they themselves can't figure out how or why is any of this happening? Here Yogananda quotes one particular scientist. We'll not go into it because it just gets heavy and heavy and heavy. So we'll just continue on to another interesting aspect which we touched upon, which is that in 1927, when the principle of the electron microscope was first discovered, it was discovered because they found that the electron or light itself had a dual personality. We come back to duality again, don't we? Which gave the electron the characteristic of light because it was both a particle and a wave. Now that's another thing that, I mean, none of us can really tune into. We live in a world where it is either this or that. You can't, ex you know, it's very hard for us to realize that two realities can exist and coexist simultaneously because the mind needs to see one or the other but light again why light is so special is light has been proven to be two realities existing simultaneously which is the reality of a wave and the reality of a particle now waves and particles behave completely differently they have completely different properties to be able to tune into light as having both properties simultaneously is still very, very, very hard for scientists to tune into. I, I think I've shared a few times an experiment called the double slit experiment. Just very briefly, I will talk about the fact that they were trying to figure out, science was, some scientists were trying to figure out when is light a particle and when is light a wave? Because they couldn't believe that it could be both. So they did this experiment by creating these two slits and they were going to fire these electrons, these light waves, you can say. That's where quantum mechanics gets its name from, quanta, which means packets of light, little packets. That's how light exists as a wave 
but in little packets as particles. So they wanted to kind of fire these little <laughs> wave packets and see as it passes through these slits what comes on the other side. So they had a screen on the other end to be able to receive whether a particle or a wave. Now if it was a particle, it would pass through those slits like a bullet would pass through creating lots of holes on the other end or lots of points on the other end. If it's a wave, it'll create like say ripples on the surface of a lake. Rip waves create something called interference patterns. And so if it goes through that slit, it'll create an interference pattern on the other end. So they run this experiment and they're surprised to see that it's creating both patterns. It's creating the dot pattern of the particle and it's creating a wave particle, uh, wave interference pattern as well. So now they're thoroughly confused. So what they do is they put just at that slit because they want to see when does it change from a particle to a wave or vice versa. They couldn't figure out how can it be both. So they place an observing kind of device just at that slit. When they place that observational device at, the, at that slit at the opening and they fire the same beam, they see that now light has become purely a particle. It's no longer a wave. When they remove the observational thing, it became both a particle and the wave. And this was, became what today is called the observer effect, which means if you observe something, it becomes or it condenses into the form that you expect it to. So because we observe this entire universe and there is an observer to see it, the universe essentially takes on the shape that you think it will. And that's another amazing reality is that the entire universe depends on our point of view. Now that's very hard for us to think because all of us are so unified in our point of view. We all believe, as I said, this is a harmonium. None of us is saying this is not a harmonium, this is something else. But it requires our observation. Otherwise, this harmonium is really just waves of light. But because you and I cannot experience waves of light and we can only experience particles as solid, the harmonium appears to us as solid. Again, another one of those really crazy moments for us, not for us to understand and say, oh, let me just go deep into this whole quantum mechanics, just for us to realize that every notion we've held is being broken and not being broken by some ancient rishis and sages, not being broken by some, you know, saint from, you know, the 17th century. It's being broken today by so-called atheists, by so-called people who say, I'm here only to find truth and I don't much care for these religious or spiritual perspectives. But what they're finding is very much in line with that very version of Maya that the rishis did purport so many centuries and millennia ago. Now we're going to continue even beyond. Page. We're going to be on page 266. We're just skipping some of these really heavy x-rays and crystal lattices of tungsten. And you know, <laughs> like, I don't know if you really want to go that deep. And we're on page 266 from the beginning. The stream of knowledge, Sir James genes writes in the mysterious universe is heading towards a non-mechanical reality. The universe begins to look more like a great thought than a great machine. Isn't that just fascinating? These are scientists telling us these things. In the Vedas and the scriptures, they talk about creation as consciousness, thought, 
energy and the physical world. Science has not only been able to tune into the fact that everything is energy, now they're very much tuning into the fact that everything's thought. Because if I'm observing and if I want it to be a particle because I want to see what it is, it becomes a particle. The moment I'm not observing, it's both a wave and a particle. The universe exists in all possibilities. And it solidifies into one possibility as we observe it. Which is another amazing thing is that nothing is set. Everything that you would consider destiny, fate, karma, even those exist as multiple possibilities of so many ways that our life can potentially express itself. It's just that we're so married to our karma that it then begins to solidify and express itself only in this one way. If the moment we move ourselves from egoic identification with the body and the karmic reality no longer has any binding ability, the entire universe becomes limitless to us in our potential. From science then, if it must be so, let man learn this philosophical truth that there is no material universe. It's warp and woof, which is a textile reference of the warp and woof of a fabric, is maya, illusion. Its mirage of reality all break down under analysis. As one by one, the reassuring props of a physical cosmos crash beneath him, man dimly perceives his idolatrous reliance and his past transgression of the divine command. Thou shalt not have, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is another uh, line from the Old Testament in the Bible where God says you will have no other gods before me which means I am the singular reality in the entire universe we in fact have many gods one of our gods is called money and one of our gods is called possession and one of our gods is called relationship and one of our gods and we worship them with all our might and we worship them with all our love and because we love this reality we cannot be absorbed into God. And these are the two tugs of these two pulls. One of Maya at the base of our spine, one of the divine sun at the top of our Agya Chakra. And it's because love is that gravitational pull as we were tuning into. Right now our love for Maya is so strong that we're constantly pulled into relate to her. When our love for God becomes stronger than our love for Maya, then we will naturally just be drawn into him and space and time will bend beyond that vibration of that love that we have for him. And then and only then will we realize that none of this exists. But until that time, we cannot live in delusion of even saying space doesn't exist, time doesn't exist, nothing exists, nobody exists. Because as long as you are in duality, everything exists and then you have to deal with it in accordance to that reality. The famous equation, in his famous equation outlining the equivalence of mass and energy, this is another fascinating thing. Einstein proved that the energy in any particle of matter is equal to its mass or weight multiplied by the square of the velocity of light. This we know. E equals mc square. What does that mean? The release of atomic, atomic energies is, has brought about through the annihilation of material particles. That means as matter 
is destroyed, energy is released. But destroy not just in a physical sense, as our mm, delusion of matter is destroyed, we naturally awaken to the awareness that everything is pure energy. The death of matter, Yogananda says, has been the birth of the atomic age. Then he goes on to say, and this is the fascinating part for me, light velocity is a mathematical standard or constant, not because there is an absolute value in 186,000 miles per second. So, you know, it's not because light is in fact fixed at 186,000 miles. That's, it's not an absolute reality because it's in fact truly constant which it isn't under certain situations, light is not constant as well. But as Yogananda said previously, to man's finite mind, it's as close as the only constant thing that could exist in creation. But he's saying it's not about the speed of light at all, in, the, in fact, but because no material body whose mass increases with its velocity can ever attain the velocity of light. Stated another way, and this will clarify things a little bit, only a material body whose mass is infinite could equal the velocity of light. Let's think about this for a moment. E equals mc square. So if I want to get to the speed of light, that means my mass, because I don't know how much, you know, mass comes down here below E. And in order to approach the speed of light, my mass, as Shurjo, is going to have to infinitely increase. So if I, the faster I go at the speed of light and approach speed of light, my own mass needs to keep increasing, keep increasing, keep increasing. Of course, my mass cannot increase. And what does mass mean? By Einstein's standards, mass equals energy. So if I realize if I have infinite energy, only then can I travel at the speed of light. This, Yogananda says, brings us this conception brings us to the law of miracles. The master who is able to materialize and dematerialize their bodies or any other object and to move with the velocity of light and to utilize the creative light rays in bringing into instant visibility any physical manifestation have fulfilled the necessary Einsteinian condition. Their mass is infinite. Why is their mass? Not their physical mass. Their energy is infinite. The moment we tap in, this is why we do the energization exercises, to get to that state of infinite energy. The moment you are no longer bound, that this is my body, this is all I am, and the moment you realize I am in fact this entire universe, your mass, your energy, the prana, becomes infinitely available to us. The moment an infinite amount of energy is available to us, we can then travel at the speed of light, which means we can exhibit the same properties that light does. Instantaneously be wherever we need to be, be a particle or a wave. When I'm a particle, I'm Shurjo. When I'm a wave, I'm spirit. I can dematerialize, I can rematerialize, I can create 600 Shurjos. I'm sure Narayani will not appreciate that one, but you know, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> when I'm light, I can do whatever I want, but since we're not light yet, because our in energy is not yet infinite, because we're still conditioned to believe our energy depends on the body that we inhabit, 
therefore we're very limited in our ability to create and produce miracles. However, on a subatomic reality, as we just saw through the observer effect, we're constantly creating miracles because everything in this universe is moving in and out of, out of creation based on our perception of it. So a person who you thought was really bad, the moment you change your perception becomes a wonderful person. <laughs> and that person in fact becomes wonderful and what you draw from him is wonderful qualities and what did exist, that evil or bad thing in him that you first perceived, now no longer even comes to you anymore as if it doesn't exist at all. Of course to another person it could exist still. And so the whole universe is just dependent on what we're receiving from it because that's what, what we're receiving from the universe is light. In, my, in order to see Narayani, light has to reflect from Narayani back into my eyes. So what I'm really receiving is Narayani in the form of light. But I'm seeing light as a packet, as a particle in order to see Narayani. When I see light purely as both particle and wave, I can see Narayani in whatever form I want. Narayani can appear and disappear at will if she in fact has that infinite mass that the saints do. So isn't that fascinating that they're not just like randomly going about, a saint isn't just some random dude who's like decides, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Even in their miracles, they're fulfilling the very same theories that this entire universe is based on. The problem is that because no mass can be infinite, nobody can break Einstein's law. But a saint whose mass is infinite because they believe themselves or they experience themselves as the infinite universe, they can do whatever they want. Then they fulfill. But up till that time, they too are governed by Einsteinian principles just as you and I are governed by them. But they're not creating special laws for themselves. They're not just doing some random stuff. They're very much fulfilling the same principles upon which all of creation rests. And that's the beauty of God. He does not break his laws, but he has loopholes in his laws that the saints are able to utilize. Not just even loopholes, the laws themselves, in fact. Okay, where are we in time? Oh, almost there. Maybe we should t take a little pause. My mouth's hurting a little bit <laughs> from like these big, big words. I don't know, Narayan, you've not said much. If you have some simpler way to kind of bring all this crazy stuff into no, some perspective. Not really, but I was thinking uh, what Yogananda used to say to his disciples, sometimes to explain these concepts. And he would say comments as, if you knew how I see each one of you, if you could see yourself how I perceive and see each one of you as light, as pure light, and that's how the masters really relate to each one of us. They don't talk to our face, to our personality, our tendencies. They talk directly to that beam of light. And they relate to us from their light, from their spiritual eye to ours. And that's such a fascinating concept to meditate on. And of course, talking about love being the main gravitational force in our lives and really what sustains 
the universe itself. I was also thinking when Yogananda gave this advice to one of his disciples when he asked him, so Master, what are we going to do when you are gone, when we won't be able to perceive your physical presence? And one of the answers uh, was, when I am gone, only love can take my place. And I was thinking, if I'm able to develop such intense gravitational field through love, if I become love, if I vibrate with love, if I emanate love, uh, everything that will come to me will be pure love, the consciousness of love flowing through every relationship, every uplifting thought, every place will be a manifestation of love where I will feel constantly nourished, protected, with a sense of safety and a sense of constant guidance where I'll be able to surrender myself completely. I mean, this is what it means to live in that vibrational field of love. So perhaps uh, this is the only way that for many of us can bring down all these amazing concepts, scientific laws that are applied in the world of duality and, and make them real from the very basic. How can I become a manifestation of love and therefore let that love transform my life and use the power of love as, as my only real tool to change myself, to change others, and to keep attracting that love that I'm constantly and desperately looking for and expecting for others to also reciprocate that love. So these are just thoughts that I was hoping and perhaps meditate a little bit more throughout this week, especially today, how I can bring these two concepts of love as the main motor of my life and light, how I can start seeing you more as light and my good advice and how can I relate much more with everyone around me from that point of light and of course uh, to share that love with everyone. Not an easy task. That's the greatest <laughs> but, miracle. <laughs> but this is what they are advising us to, if nothing else, practice. All right, everybody, you've got